Hello, and welcome back to Clinician's Brief Partner Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Beth Mollison, and on today's episode, graciously sponsored by Zoetis, we are going to be discussing ways that we, as general practitioners, can improve the surgical and anesthetic experience for our patients with a focus on how to improve that anesthetic recovery. And today is extra special because we have not only one, but two wonderful guests bringing their expertise to the table. With us today is Dr. Tammy Grubb, a veterinary anesthesiologist and president-elect of the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management, and Dr. Tracy Dice, a longtime practicing veterinarian and currently professional services veterinarian with Suetis. Drs. Dice and Grubb are here to guide us through ways we can all implement these recovery plans in practice. So Dr. Grubb, I wanted to kick it off here with you. I know you are an author of the AHA Anesthesia and Analgesia Guidelines, in which you describe anesthesia as a continuum of care, which I thought was an interesting way to phrase it. So if you don't mind to kind of explain to us what this means and why it's important to kind of the way that we as general practitioners think about anesthesia. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for asking. The AHA guidelines, I think, are amazing. So I was very happy to be a part of that. And the continuum of care means that anesthesia is not just the time that the patient is unconscious, which is what I think most of us think anesthesia is. But safe anesthesia actually often starts at home with the owner. And we have the owner administer drugs like anxiolytics or potentially analgesics or other drugs. Then the continuum continues with the pet in the hospital. And it really doesn't end until that pet or patient is back at home, physiologically stable, and of course, with its pain controls. You know, and really even in the hospital, anesthesia isn't just the time the patient is unconscious. Anesthesia really consists of four equally important phases, equally important, pre-anesthesia, induction, maintenance, and recovery. So I think you can see the continuum. It starts at home with the owner, there's more in the hospital with the four phases, and then it finishes at home with the owner. Yeah, I really like that, that you mentioned the four different phases of anesthesia, because I know that in general we, or I guess I should speak for myself, at least I think that, you know, when the patient is extubated, anesthesia is done. But I do really like the way you talk about it, where you highlight that recovery phase or the post-extubation phase, like you said, is actually a very important part of anesthesia. So what are the goals for a patient recovering from anesthesia? How should we be thinking of that recovery period? And what are, what are some of those things that can go wrong in that period that we should all be aware of? Well, great questions. And you're not alone. Many people think, okay, anesthesia is over, the patient's extubated, close the cage door and walk away. And that really isn't true at all, as I'm sure we'll talk more about in our podcast. But the extubation time is extremely important. So you asked about goals and what can go wrong. Let's start with goals. The main goal is that the patient should start to regain consciousness, and we, we evidence that by return of the swallowing reflex and things like a, a brisk palpebral reflex. This should be happening within about 5 to 15 minutes after turning off that inhalant. We don't want it to be too slow, but definitely not too fast either, because fast often means rough or uncontrolled. We want that recovery to be really smooth, and the patient really should be calm through that entire recovery period. And now what could go wrong? Unfortunately, it's a long list. There are a number of things, including prolonged recoveries, rough recoveries or dysphoria, 
uncontrolled pain, vomiting, which potentially could lead to aspiration. There can be hypothermia, hyperthermia, and there's still a longer list. And unfortunately, it can get really bad because most unexpected anesthesia-related deaths occur in that recovery phase. That's largely because sometimes the patient isn't yet physiologically stable, but we are busy, right, all of us, and we need to move on to that next patient. So we often find ourselves pulling our nursing staff away from the recovering patient to start that next patient. And really what we need to do is to emphasize that physiologic monitoring and support should continue, leave those nurses with the patient in the recovery phase. For those patients that are at risk, like patients with comorbidities, we know that they're already at risk for anesthesia-related complications, and those, again, could manifest in recovery. But also those that are seemingly healthy but didn't do quite right under anesthesia, like maybe they had a low oxygen saturation the entire procedure and we couldn't fix it. So we just really need to have more patient focus in recovery. I would love to change those recovery statistics and decrease recovery deaths. That would be awesome. Yes, absolutely. And I know you mentioned prolonged recoveries. What Can you tell us more about what causes those prolonged recoveries? How do we work toward avoiding them? You know, I think all of us can remember a time or two or maybe more where you have that patient that kind of takes up the whole, the whole <laughs> afternoon and you're wondering, you know, hoping the owners are going to come at the end of the day. How do we work toward avoiding that? Oh, I love the way you worded that. Not how do we fix it? How do we try to avoid it? Because that really is the best way to do it is to not let it happen to start with. And I'll bet Dr. Dice has some tips as well. I'll start. Among the most common causes of long recoveries is long anesthesia time. So if that patient has been down a really long time, just expect recovery to be long. We can't really fix it. Um, so the other thing is that patients that are too deeply anesthetized during that maintenance phase of anesthesia, that also impacts recovery. And depending on the procedure, we may not be able to change the duration of anesthesia. Some surgeries just have to be long, but we can certainly ensure that our patients are not too deep. And we do that by using effective, balanced analgesia, because that allows us to keep that inhalant dose low. <laughs> One of my many mantras is what happens in maintenance also happens in recovery. So meaning if the patient is too deep during maintenance, they're still too deep in recovery. They have to exhale all of that isoplurane. So it has to leave the bloodstream and exhale it right before they can wake up. On the flip side of that, my mantra means that if pain is controlled and kept low in maintenance, then that patient has lower pain in recovery. So it can be good or bad. What happens in maintenance happens in recovery. Great. And, you know, Dr. Greb, thanks for tapping me in because I just want to touch a little bit on hypothermia because we know it can be a big contributor. And I like to think it's better to prevent hypothermia than to treat hypothermia. I think by the time our patients are tending towards hypothermia, we're behind the eight ball. So using devices like warming, um, bear huggers, thermal angels, thermal blankets, those are some of the most common tools. And if we find ourselves without those tools, it's okay to get creative as long as we protect our patients from thermal injury. 
We can do things like put little booties or socks over their paws, not have our patients in direct contact with surgical tables, and cover them with blankets to minimize body surface area exposed and really lock that heat in. Now, in a pinch, I have rat feet with aluminum foil, almost like a little potato, and covered my patients with foil blankets. What we must do, though, is we must avoid warming tools that can cause thermal burns. And you know what I'm talking about, those plug-in heat pads, heated fluid bags, and, and heated rye socks. Those things, we just got to keep them out of our surgical suites. Absolutely. Love those tips. Thank you both. And then, of course, we talk about prolonged recoveries, but Maybe even more at the front of my mind are some of those rough recoveries. Again, we can all think of the time those patients have had rough recoveries, and they're just as scary, I think, if not scarier than prolonged recoveries. Uh, of course, there's a risk for patient injury, traumatizing to the staff. Um, how can we avoid these rough recoveries for our patients? Do you guys have any tips there? Yeah, I bet we both do. I'll jump in again, just because I'm like that. <laughs> so we, we absolutely <laughs> totally agree with you. We've had this discussion before um, between ourselves. And it, it is so true. A rough recovery is, as you said, often more dangerous than a prolonged recovery. Prolonged recovery, as long as we're keeping that patient safe with physiologic monitoring and support, as we've mentioned, sometimes they are just a bit long, especially if the anesthesia was long. But the, the rough recovery is very dangerous for the patient. They can injure themselves, as you've said, and also very dangerous for the staff. We, we have seen staff injuries when they're trying to restrain that, that uncontrollable patient. And to be honest with you, too, we really feel that the level of fear or stress that that patient is experiencing during the bad recovery can cause, obviously, negative physiologic effects. We see increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, but also negative behavioral effects. The patients may get worse, their fear, anxiety, stress may get worse, or they may get aggressive. So there's a lot of reasons that these are, that we try to prevent, as you mentioned, avoid those bad recoveries. And let's pause there and let's look at fear, anxiety, and stress, or, or even aggression. We know that if our patients exhibit any of those, whether it's fear, anxiety, stress, or aggression prior to anesthesia, they're likely going to exhibit those behaviors in recovery. And I think, Dr. Grubb, I might have gently borrowed this from you, but we like to call it rodeo in, rodeo out, meaning that the anesthesia doesn't change the patient's personality. So we must change and adapt our approach and anesthetic management to fit the patient. <laughs> that is so funny. I'm so proud that you said it because yes, that is another one of my mantras. If the patient is high fear, anxiety, stress before anesthesia, they're going to wake up the same way. We don't fix that with anesthesia. So thank you. I'm very proud. And you know, there's some other factors still we can go on that commonly cause rough recoveries. And I want to go back to the four phases of anesthesia because just think we should think about this. Decisions and actions that we make in those other phases of anesthesia, so I'm meaning like inadequate sedation in the pre-anesthesia period and inadequate pain control in any of the anesthetic periods, those decisions can impact recovery. So we need to make a robust sedative and analgesic protocol 
that includes drugs like the alpha-2 agonist. So we get both sedation and analgesia with one drug class. And then adding in the opioids and the local anesthetics, whatever other drugs we need for pain relief. We really need, again, to think through those four phases because everything that comes before recovery impacts recovery. So yeah, let's talk more about that pre-anesthetic phase. Something that seems to have come to light more in recent years is the idea of having owners administer medication at home before a pet comes to the hospital, which I personally love that idea. What role would you say the owner plays here when we think about anesthesia? What are tips for things we can do before the patient you know, even steps foot in the hospital to improve that overall experience for everyone involved? Yeah, if it's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in on this one, Dr. Grubb. So the pet owner is an integral part of the process. In patients that have a history of fear, anxiety, stress, when visiting the vet, we want to do all that we can to maximize success, which often means partnering with the pet owner. For cat and dog patients arriving in a carrier, carrier, let's remember that the pet owner brings the carrier out days, if not a week in advance, and implements positive conditioning with that carrier. Pheromone sprays and collars may be a benefit. And since we know a calm patient is a safer patient to anesthetize, we require owners of FAS pets to pick up meds, whether it's trazodone, gabapentin, pregabalin, prior to the procedure. For canine patients suffering from motion sickness, we can prescribe Serenia tablets for the prevention of vomiting associated with those car rides. Yes, absolutely. I love those tips. And on a slightly different topic, I want to talk about pain control. So This is, of course, a subjective viewpoint, but I feel like in the last 10 years since I started practicing, there has been an increased focus on pain control for the better, of course. Um, And hopefully this is a judgment-free zone, but I don't even remember doing nerve blocks on many patients in vet school just to show you how far I feel like we've come. But what mistakes do you see when it comes to the way we think about pain in our patients? What advice can you guys give us surrounding pain? You know, definitely this is a judgment-free zone because we're all in this together. You know, I remember back in vet school, we gave ACE and inhalants. You know, there really wasn't any such thing as pain management. And I look back at that terrifically and so happy that you are right. We are, we've really come such a long way. And, you know, a couple of the mistakes, I think the biggest mistake we make is saying that animals don't feel pain. Now, most veterinarians and no veterinary nurse would ever say that again, but we used to feel that way. And certainly lay people can still feel that way. And the thing is that animals have a pain pathway that is almost exactly the same as ours, as a human's, right? Almost exactly the same. So scientifically, if a stimulus is painful to a human, it has to be painful to an animal. This is not anthropomorphism. This is science. But they hide pain really well. And that's why people think they don't feel pain as they don't see that pain in the animal. And this is a very, very strong evolutionary survival instinct to hide a weakness and pain could be perceived as a weakness by a predator. So this is never going to go away. We're not going to suddenly convince our animals to start showing pain. So we have to anticipate pain. I think it's a mistake that we don't anticipate it and try to prevent it. We, we've been talking in this whole podcast about prevention and same with pain. We want to prevent it as much as we can. And if we just think about how painful a surgery would be to us as a human, 
and then scientifically assume that it is the same pain level for animals. Don't make the mistake that they don't feel pain. Assume it's the same pain level. And that's the pain level that we should treat. And, you know, it's treatment's not enough. We also need to follow up and make sure our treatment was effective. And we need to do pain scoring in our patients in recovery. Absolutely. So, Dr. Dice, I'm going to get some some uh, information from you, too. What are some easy ways that you would say are easy ways to implement better pain control in practice? And how should we have the vet team as a whole, not just veterinarians, but what ways can we have the vet team thinking about or assessing pain? Like Dr. Grubb mentioned with the pain scores, what advice do you have for us there? Yeah, thanks. It's a it's a great question. I have to tell you, my vet health team, they keep me honest when it comes to getting ahead of pain. <laughs> they are the biggest advocates and I'm so grateful for them. So to get ahead of pain, we have to know how to recognize it. And there's some really wonderful validated pain scales. And it's important for us to leverage these as baseline before the procedure and after. So what we do, we keep these laminated in our prep area and in our ICU. So that's that's what we do to start. We just have these nice little laminated, validated um, pain scores. Then our standard has become a multimodal approach to pain management. So every patient's going to get perioperative non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They're going to get Serenia injectable for perioperative vomiting prevention. That's if tablets were not prescribed for prevention of vomiting due to motion sickness en route to my office. And they're going to get an opioid. Now, sometimes, and I have to say lately, more often than not, as Tammy mentioned, the um, alpha agonist or dexmedetomidine might be added into our pre-meds as well. Over the last 10 years, I become a big fan of local blocks and CRIs. In fact, most of my technicians are able to do both of these for me. And the cool thing about local blocks, since they're inexpensive, it's a win-win. It's a win for the patient and it's a win for, for the pet owner. I love that. I love the idea of having those laminated pain scores everywhere, doing that kind of initial assessment. And like you said, getting your team involved to make them feel empowered. And one more question about pain. How do you differentiate those when we're talking in the post-op period, those dysphoric patients from those pets that are truly painful? How do you distinguish that? That is such a great, great question. And as we all know, why we're talking about it, it can be very difficult because both dysphoria and pain can result in an uncontrollable patient. So we're talking about, I completely agree with, with both of you. We need to do pain scoring. I know I mentioned it already too. So often pain scoring will help us do that. But when we have the, the really dysphoric patients, we can't pain score at that moment. They're not allowing us to interact with them at all. So really to me, whether it's dysphoria or pain, it doesn't matter. We have to treat it. So if we can't decide what it is, uh, what we should keep in mind is that it's very often both pain and dysphoria. And I can say that again scientifically because pain can cause dysphoria, can cause fear, anxiety, and stress, as we've been talking about. And what many people don't know, but is equally impactful, is that dysphoria, that fear, anxiety, stress that's occurring in dysphoria, can actually exacerbate pain. It doesn't cause pain, but it makes pain worse. 
So when I see a patient recovering that way, first I assume that it might be pain because that's worst case scenario for the patient, right? Not the dysphoria is not worst case scenario. The pain is. So first I assume it might be pain and I treat that unless I have just given a bolus of opioids or something, right? I, I treated it um, at the end of surgery or at the end of anesthesia and that opioid should be kicking in. Otherwise, I think, okay, how long ago did I give the opioid or I love the local blocks as well. I'm so glad Dr. Dice brought those up. And how long ago did that occur and could that be wearing off? And then uh, think about treating pain first. If I really think it's not pain, then obviously a sedative would be my choice. And we, we have both mentioned this. The alpha-2 agonist class is my favorite. So like dexmedetomidine, because then we get the sedation and the pain relief. So I don't have to worry about which one it is, right? I, I can get both with the one drug class. And even if we decide it's, it's definitely pain, often we still have to give, we, we give a potent opioid, for instance, and we still often have to give that alpha-2 agonist because if a patient is experiencing a high level of fear, anxiety, and stress, sometimes treating that pain alone isn't enough. We also have to calm them down with a sedative. So a lot of times we need both. Okay, great. And let's change directions for a moment. I know another big stressor for veterinarians is that post-op vomiting. And because it's a well-known complication in humans, I honestly feel like sometimes I even have owners that this is their primary concern when they're worried about anesthesia. You always hear about that post-op vomiting concern. So what do we know and what do we understand about post-op vomiting in our patients? Yeah, great. It's a great question. I'm, I'm happy to say I think we know a lot more now than we did when I started practicing a couple of decades ago. So what we know is course, post-op vomiting is unpleasant. It can also lead to issues like dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, low blood sugar, as well as increased intracranial and intraocular pressure. And what about aspiration pneumonia? Um, nobody, nobody wants to have aspiration pneumonia as a post-op complication. And we know aspiration pneumonia can be more prevalent in patients with upper airway dysfunction, like our, our little brachiocephalics, right? And um, we mentioned earlier, we, we talked about fear, anxiety, and stress. And we know that perioperative vomiting increases anxiety stress, and abdominal discomfort. So when we look at the medical and emotional consequences of perioperative vomiting, they can truly impact recovery and healing. Absolutely. And Dr. Dice, what is your favorite way or how can we in general practice control post-op vomiting? Yeah. So of course, my my favorite way, and this is something we have done in, in the practice where where um, I do surgery, we um, incorporate perioperative serenia injectable into all of our surgical or anesthesia protocols. And what we found is that not only does serenia decrease vomiting that perioperative time period, but those patients have smoother recoveries and faster return to normal eating than dogs that didn't receive serenia. Recovering and healing are accelerated when gastrointestinal function and the microbiome are maintained through a speedy return to feeding. And pet owners actually gauge surgical success by their pets return to normal behaviors. And we know eating is one of those behaviors. So uh, uh, 
a smooth post-op recovery experience is great. It helps create peace of mind for us, our clients, our patients. And, and we just know a happy client makes for a stronger vet client bond. Absolutely. So um, we've discussed how we can potentially prevent those bad recoveries, but worst case scenario, we do have a bad recovery happening in the clinic in real time. What things can we implement in practice to help us in those moments? I think the, the biggest thing is to have a plan and to have the team ready to respond. And again, to teach them that there are four phases of anesthesia, all equally important, and to be ready in recovery, just like they are in any other, any other phase. And to act quickly, do not let this escalate. As we've already talked about, it's dangerous for the patient, it's dangerous for the staff. And if you've ever had a, a patient recovering really badly, loudly and crashing, and you look around at all the other patients, like maybe they're in the recovery cages or the pre-surgery cages, they look just as terrified as the one that's recovering, right? So for the whole hospital, act quickly. If the patient exhibits, you know, if it's really, really mild, especially right after extubation, there's a little bit of dysphoria that's normal, but it should be mild and it should dissipate in less than a minute. So if that patient exhibits moderate dysphoria for more than several minutes, a minute or two really for me, or if the dysphoria is physically uncontrollable for any duration of time, if that patient is crashing around, immediately administer analgesic drugs, as we've already discussed, and also probably a sedative as well. Again, they often need that sedative to allow that analgesic to work. So my biggest advice for the whole webinar, I think, well, maybe not the biggest, but one of the biggest, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on to that. We we find that we are able to act quickly by having a plan in place. We like to call it the PIP, the plan in place where each patient has a recovery ambassador. And part of that plan is we have the recovery drugs, anything we might need. They're calculated. They are on the record. We know who's going to grab them. We know who's going to administer them. So each patient, we have a plan. And having having that plan really helps us respond if we need to when recoveries aren't going our way. So it sounds like these rough recoveries are, like we learned, a component of a series of decisions and that hopefully if we're careful to evaluate, like you said, all four phases of anesthesia as we go, that will set us up for better anesthetic success. But what I like is that all these changes really seem implementable at least in my opinion. Dr. Dice, I'll ask you, is that your opinion too in practice? Yeah, it, it really is. You know, we used to think that we needed to have one size fits all to just make it easy, but it's completely doable to have a tailored approach to all four phases to recovery by adjusting or gently amending current protocols. We can have a tailored multimodal approach to anesthesia and pain management that doesn't have to be difficult or beyond the scope of any practitioner. Identifying anesthesia advocates within our clinics and leveraging them to assist with protocols and training is key. I find that when making an essential, when I, when I make them an essential part of the process, I increase their belief and buy-in, which just in return increases implementation success. And one more question, Dr. Dice, what do you think the owner expects 
in the patient during that recovery phase from anesthesia? And how can we meet those expectations? You know, what do they hope for when their pet comes home after anesthesia? Yeah, this this has changed. This has changed a lot for me over the last, say, 10 years or so, because I think the owner really expects and wants their pet to return home fully awake. Now, maybe quiet, but definitely awake physiologically stable, and definitely with their pain control. Owners are aware of pain in their pets and expect us to provide that relief. And as we touched on earlier, post-operative comfort and return to normalcy is important to our pet owners, and that's what they really want to see. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, being in practice, I can agree with that. I think we all have gotten the phone calls 20 minutes after the pet goes home with the litany of questions because their pet doesn't seem normal. So it can also be beneficial to the staff when everything goes smoothly as well. But what, you know, when we are discharging a pet, what should that communication look like? How do we set them up for success when they do leave the hospital? Yeah, just just as in the pre-operative period, the pet owner plays a vital role in the recovery period because they are our eyes, ears, and boots on the ground once the pet leaves our hospital. We can transition from a smooth hospital recovery to a smooth home recovery by communicating expectations what to watch out for, and how to monitor vitals like mucous membrane color, heart and respiratory rates, along with appetite and potty habits. Not taking time to educate our pet owners about home recovery and setting them up for success in the process is like fumbling the ball on the game-winning touchdown. (laughs) I love that. So You guys have provided so many good tips today. So Your expertise has been wonderful and congrats. You both made it to the keeping it brief segment, which is just how we like to end our podcast here. And today we're going to use it by asking for some personal experiences and hopefully I'm not bringing up anything too traumatic with this question, but I wanted to ask if you guys can each share one of your most difficult recoveries, what you learned from it, and more importantly, how the audience can learn for it, learn from it too. Oh my gosh, I love this section. I might have to gently borrow this from, <laughs> from you it. guys. This is incredible. <laughs> so let's see. Oh, I think I think mine might be a tie between two, um, both which ended in our favor. And the first one involved a greyhound. I love it. I'm a crazy greyhound lady, so please go ahead, Doctor Dice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm a, I'm I'm a crazy sighthound person too. Yes. So we know in this day and age, pretty much anyone can successfully anesthetize a sighthound. But the question to ask is, can everyone successfully recover one? And what I mean by that is sighthounds are, are notorious for post-op recovery, rhythm disturbances, apnea shenanigans. And sometimes those things happen 10 minutes after they're extubated and you can lose them in a drop of a hat. For this reason, we have a motto and, and maybe Dr. Grubb, I, I can I can um, pay you back on, on the clever mottos with regards to <laughs> recovery, but our motto is never let a sleeping extubated patient lie, unattended that is. 
which is a great segue into my um, number two, which is post-op extubation. Surprise! Laryngospasm in cats, where they literally go into respiratory rest after they've been extubated. Oh my gosh, those are amazing. I can, t- I can totally see why those are uh, the worst the worst recoveries. And, um, you know, when Beth said, I hope it's not traumatic, the, the, this question, it's, it's making me feel traumatic, Tracy, just listening to what you had to go through with those recoveries. And yeah, cats are always quite amazing. I love your, <laughs> I love your motto. So we can share each other's mottos. And for me, recovery, I don't, I can't think of one specific incident, but it's probably almost every Arctic breed dog, you know, the Huskies and the, the all those affiliated type dogs um, and that's actually not anymore though that was until i learned to anticipate their needs and we keep talking again about anticipation prevention just think about those arctic breed dogs when they have a bad recovery one of my pet peeves is when people say oh it's just a husky well it's reality to that husky right they function under a really high stress level they're just stressed out dogs it's that's what they are so let's work with that that's normal for them and you know they may even feel pain worse than other dogs because as i mentioned earlier that stress can exacerbate the intensity of pain so i don't know maybe they maybe they're more painful too the thing with these guys is i don't let them wake up bad anymore if i think their sedation is worn off i know that they will wake up too quickly and too loudly (laughs) So if they have that typical stressed out personality, that typical Arctic breed personality, I almost always give them a touch of sedation, a touch of alpha two before we extubate, which I know is not how we were taught, but waiting until after we extubate, they, they've proved me wrong too many times to, you know, to trust them. Like, no, 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 they're going to have a bad recovery. So just giving them that, just a touch of sedative, like one to two micrograms per kilogram of dexmedetomity it might delay recovery just a little bit, but it's a smoother recovery and it's a safer recovery. And quite frankly, if we let them recover badly, we have to give them a higher dose of sedative. And so then they're back out again. So I don't know that it really prolongs it, but it certainly is better for both the patient and the staff. I love that tip. I think we can all picture those uh, Arctic breed situations that have been imprinted in our mind for one reason or another. So (laughs) not a bad tip there. And again, thank you both so much for joining us and imparting all of your wisdom and tips on upon us. And I know that I'm excited to implement some of those tips in my anesthetic cases. And I hope our audience is too. And one more big thank you to our industry partner, Suetis, for making this conversation today possible. Thanks, Beck. This has been really fun. I've learned a lot. I hope the audience has. Same, same. So many things I'm going to go do a little differently after being in the presence of both of you guys today. And um, Dr. Beth, would it be okay? Could I just share the important safety information for Serenia since we talked about it? Absolutely. Please go ahead. Great. So let's remember, use Serenia injectable subcutaneously for acute vomiting in dogs two to four months of age or either sub-Q or intravenously in dogs four months of age and older. Use Serenia tablets for acute vomiting in dogs two months of age and older and for prevention of vomiting due to motion sickness in dogs four months and older. Safe use has not been evaluated in dogs with GI obstruction or those that have ingested toxin. 
used with caution in dogs with hepatic dysfunction. Pain vocalization upon injection is a common side effect. In people, topical exposure may elicit localized allergic skin reactions and repeated or prolonged exposure may lead to skin sensitization. For full prescribing information, visit SereniaPI.com. Thanks again to our sponsor and to today's guests for joining us, and thanks to you all for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can also listen to podcasts on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. And you can also drop us a line at podcasts at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief Partner Podcast is a Brief Media production.